The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missioday.org. Good morning. My name is Justin, like Justin just said. Uh, I'm beardless Justin, if that's easier. Uh, last time I didn't get an intro, I think Rama's Pastor Justin here just really wanted to be sure to make sure that you know, I know to slow down. I ain't got time for that. I got a lot to say. I'm not slowing down. We're just getting after it. Uh, but I am here today to open back up the word again to the book of Ephesians where we've been in for quite some time. Um, the first half of the letter, we're looking at how God, through his great work of Christ, makes us his people. And then the last half of this letter, we're seeing ways in what it looks like to walk as a new creation, a new community with new desires. Uh, In other words, I'm here to provide incentivization on how to walk in the Christian life. He does that on purpose. He's actually incredibly smart. He just, he loves the mess of words. So today we are specifically in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. So if you have a Bible, you can start to turn there, an app, you can open that up. And we are going to look at the author Paul, and he is going to encourage us to live carefully with wisdom. So that's, that's kind of the main thing we're looking at, to live carefully with wisdom. Moving slowly. Okay, read with me, starting in verse 15, chapter five of Ephesians. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Join me, church, as I pray over us this morning. Father, we love you. God, I'm thankful that you are kind to us to give us your word and to give us your spirit. I pray that you would be with me and with us in this room today, that we would pay careful attention to what you have for us and how we can walk closely with you. God, I pray that your text would come alive and change our lives. In this we pray, in Christ's name, amen. So here we see Paul for the fifth and final time in the last part of this letter using this word to walk, to walk. So he has previously used it to say, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, to walk no longer as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, and then to walk in love and to walk as children of the light. That's all just within the last like 40 verses. And here he's specifically calling us to carefully look at how we walk. So what's he talking about? I think that he's continuing to build on the first use. So that first use, to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called as Christians. I think he's continuing to show us what that looks like. So what does it mean to walk? If you've been around church long enough, if you've been around believers long enough, you have inevitably come across the guy that is insistently asking you, bro, how's your walk? How's your walk, man? Does that not sound crazy? I just feel like that's kind of a goofy thing. Blew my mind, that's in the Bible. 
actually we're called to consider how we walk. So what does it mean? It means how are you living? To walk is to live. And we are called to live a life that is worthy of the calling in which we have been called as Christians. So Paul here narrows in to walk carefully with wisdom. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So what does it mean to be careful, to live carefully? Carefully indicates something of importance. It indicates uh, a desire to be accurate, to pay careful attention to, to maybe slowly consider, act with urgency. So as I was thinking about these things, a story hit my mind. A buddy of mine that I work with, dating a girl for several years, like half a decade, in his 20s. Didn't go great, abruptly ended, break up, and for about a year, they didn't talk to each other, they didn't see each other, but as chance would have it, they were both going to be in a mutual friend's wedding like in the, in the coming weeks. So my buddy really wanted to make a good impression because he hadn't seen her, and so you know, he wants to look good. So he goes to get a haircut just a couple days before the wedding. And he sits down in the chair, hairstylist comes up, right as he's about to lay metal to hair, he literally reaches up and grabs her arm, looks her in the eyes, and says, this is the most important haircut you have ever cut in your life. <laughs> Do not mess this up. Literal words from my friend. So what's he saying? There is much at stake here. Be careful how you cut. Paul similarly says there is much at stake in this life be careful how you walk. So there's much at stake, so we need to walk carefully. Additionally, I think he's letting us know that hey, th there's difficulties at hand. Paul is giving us a warning to live carefully, not just because of the great importance of a life well lived, but also because of the great threats we encounter as we walk out this Christian life. So what I think I see Paul doing here is giving us three sets of warnings Look out, be careful, and responses. How should we then live in light of this? So that's what we're gonna look at today. Verse 16, this is where we find our first set. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The first warning or something that we need to carefully consider is that the days are evil. And our response or our way to live with wisdom is to make the best use of the time or to rephrase that, live with eternal perspective. So what does it mean that the days are evil? I don't think it literally means that the day is evil. I think it means that what the day is full of that we are living in or walking in is full of evil. Uh, it's not something that we carefully consider, which is why I think Paul gives us this warning. There is active opposition at hand. So we need to understand that there is opposition. Uh, like, like a salmon swimming upstream, there's forces pushing us back. We need to understand this if we want to walk closely and carefully with the Lord. In this letter alone, we see two instances. First, in, in chapter two, Paul says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air. Secondly, in chapter six, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That sounds like something out of like a comic book, cosmic forces. Paul is trying to make very clear to us there is active opposition to our life and the way that we are designed to walk with the Lord, and we need to be aware of that. Know that the days are evil, that there's opposition against you. 
Secondly, I think we need to understand the facade of the life that we live. We are all surrounded by a sense of false immortality. Uh, couple of examples. We see this uh, in our desperate desire to pursue our own health. We think that if we put enough effort into our health that we will be strong forever. Um, standing here today, eight whole 30s into my life, I'll tell you, I, I get really strong and really thin and then I eat a whole lot of pizza and cheeseburger after that and donuts and ice cream and all sorts of things. It, it's, it's futile. At some point, your health will fail you. Same thing with wealth. We look to our wealth and believe that it's going to provide financial security, protection. It's going to set us up for all that we need. It's not true. I work in the financial services industry. I'll tell you that's not true. Your money will run out. The world around us is bent to think about this present life as all that there is, that that is eternal to the world. And it's easy as believers to get pulled into that. What are you chasing after? Do, do you understand that it will end? So how do we live? We should live as believers in Jesus with eternal perspective. So in view of the fact that the days we walk in are dangerous, we need to spend our time thinking about the life ahead. So the first thing I will give us as a charge is we need to be ever mindful of the brevity of this life. In Psalm chapter 90, the psalmist, I think, accurately paints this picture says, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. So that's like if you did a bunch of whole 30s, you're gonna live to 80, not 70. Yet, their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and the wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. So here we see the psalmist saying that a one who is wise will number our days. Now I, I am very aware that there are many among us who have tasted the bitterness of the brevity of life and have experienced great loss. But I am incredibly concerned that because we are such a young and vibrant congregation that we often overlook this. We do not consider that this life is brief. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. It's a mist, it's a vapor, it's quick. I think Paul here is telling us we need to live in a way that we understand the brevity of life. If we don't, we fall victim to what John Flavel, who's a, a super old pastor, the guy actually, he's a pastor of fishermen, I don't know why, but he like said, I want to pastor fishermen. But he writes about this, that we fall victim to one, presumptuous hopes, and two, discouraging fears. So what does it mean to fall victim to presumptuous hopes? Flavel rightly says, presumptuous hopes says tomorrow will be as today, I have time. Discouraging fears say this, the time has passed, I've slipped too far into my sin and grace has far passed me. So presumptuous hopes, sorry, presumptuous hope is living a life where you think tomorrow is gonna be just as good as it is today. So you're sitting here, fairly good temperature in here, you have a warm cup of coffee, like things are going pretty well for the most of us. We tend to be confused and believe the lie that tomorrow is going to be just as good. In doing so, we lose sight of the importance of time. Additionally, some of us are stuck with discouraging fears. Maybe you feel like life is too far past and that you don't have 
uh, there's not enough left for you to do anything good. Or maybe you're so stuck in your past failures that you don't actively look towards the future. That is crippling. Discouraging fears can be a crippling chain to the past. And we do not need to live like that. Additionally, we need to frequently evaluate the eternal impact of our actions. So last year I spent a lot of time reading uh, the works of this, this guy, John Edwards, Jonathan Edwards. He was a seminary pr president, pastor, author. He wrote tons and tons of stuff. A lot of it's way over my head. Uh, but he specifically wrote what is called the resolutions. And 70 things that throughout his life he recorded and sought to think about if not daily, at least weekly. That's actually one of the resolutions. Think about these things, if not daily, at least weekly. So I wanna to point to just three of the 70, because I think we can learn a lot from Mr. Edwards here. Resolution five, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolution nine, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying, and for the common circumstances which attend death. In Resolution 52, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved, I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. This man frequently evaluated the eternal impact and measured the actions that he was taking today in light of eternity, and that's biblical. In, in Corinthians, we see that we're called to think and set our minds on things that are eternal, not things that are temporary. For things that are eternal don't pass away, but the things that we commonly put our minds at do. Um, so think about that. How are you living today, and what impact does that have on eternity? Consider this. This is a response that we should walk in as believers. So my question to you is, do you? Do you live with eternal perspective? Do you approach life with an understanding of the brevity of the life that you have? And do you seek to set your minds on things that of eternal importance that do not pass away and consider how the actions of your day-to-day -day life impact eternity? It's difficult. Moving on, verse 17, we see our second set of warning in response. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here we see the, rec the second reason we are to be careful how we live is that we are foolish people. And our response should be to live with a right understanding of God's will. To do this, we must live a life that is affected by the will of the Lord. So the first warning is we are foolish people. What do I mean by that? We refuse to acknowledge dependence on God. We refuse to acknowledge our dependence on God. In Psalms, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So if, if you're here today, uh, I'm thankful you're here. Uh, if you are here and you do not acknowledge that you believe there's a God, you have no use for God, I'm, I'm glad that you're here, but you need to understand what the Bible says about you. You're a fool. That the air that you breathe, that the words that you speak are all given to you by the God of this universe, and your act of rebellion against that is just utterly foolish. It's gonna pass away. Now, that's easy for most of us to hear because we wouldn't ascribe to that camp. We would say we do love God. We do acknowledge our dependence on him. So what does this look like for us? Is there an area of your life 
where even though you, with your mouth, acknowledge your dependence on God, the way that you live your life actually screams to those around you, there is no God. I think this is a lot harder, so I, I would want us to consider this. How are we living life in ways as believers that our actions tell the world around us there is no God? What do you put before God? Do you put your success? Do you put your marriage? Do you put your kids? Do you put your ambitions? There's so many things that we are pulled to to elevate above the God who is eternal. Additionally, as foolish people, we are careless. So God who is good gives us good things. We have many resources, we have time, we have money, we have possessions, we have a, a mind to think. How are you using it? The Bible says that the foolish person is careful or careless with his resources. Do you squander your wealth? Do you squander your time? Are you wasteful? Consider this. And lastly, we are disobedient. So because we are prone to be foolish, we are disobedient. In Matthew, Jesus tells of a guy um, who built a house on sand. Um, that's, that's pretty foolish now, but like, if, if you're ever in the market for a house and you find that there's foundation issues, like it's sinking, you run. Like that's just, that's a, that's a bad deal. Life will go bad for you if you do not have a strong foundation. So what am I talking about here? Jesus says, if you hear the word of the Lord and you do not obey it, you're like that guy. You're like the guy that pitches the tent, builds the house on something that's sinking and shifting. Be careful not to be disobedient as you're drawn in foolishness. So with an understanding that we are prone to drift in foolishness because of the warning Paul gives us, we must seek to respond by living a life that is affected by the will of the Lord. So what is Paul not saying here? I, I do not believe he's saying we need to urgently seek to know the special, unrevealed will of the Lord on you know, where we're gonna eat lunch today and who we're gonna date and what company I'm gonna apply to. Uh, I think that's maybe wise to seek wisdom in that and to seek the Lord in that, but I do not think that's what he's talking about when he says understand the will of the Lord. I think what he's talking about is the will of the Lord that he has eloquently laid out in the first four chapters of this letter, that he has made known to us the mystery of his will, and that is that Christ has come into earth and offered us redemption through his shed blood, that he has taken our disobedience and lavished upon us grace through the riches of his mercy, and that he has placed us as adopted sons in his family through the work of Christ. That's the revealed will of God. That is what our life should be affected by. So what Paul is saying here is live a life understanding God's will that rightly leads to walking or living in God's revealed promises and warnings. So what might that look like to live a life that is affected by the will of the Lord? One, resolve to spend your days seeking to know God and what he is doing. While simply knowing with your mind truths about God you are not walking in an understanding of his will, it is super important. Like you, you don't know how to live if you don't know what he wants for you. So as believers, a mark of our life should be that we are adamant to seek to know God and to spend time with him and to understand the good works that he's laid out in front of us. What are they and how do we walk in them? So open your Bible. Get to know the God of the universe who has been gracious to reveal himself to us. Spend time in prayer with the Lord. Seek to press into his goodness. 
Resolve to spend your days seeking to know God and what he is doing. Secondly, open your eyes to present opportunities. I think so often we are prone to want to uh, wish our lives away. What I mean by that is, uh, well, if, if I had this thing, then I would really be able to do something cool, or well, if I could only get this job or like work in this way, then the Lord would really use me. I think to an extent, that's crazy. God is sovereign. If you trust him, you will believe that he has placed you exactly where you're at for a purpose. There are dozens of opportunities right in front of your face to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Open your eyes. John Flavel, who I mentioned earlier, says it well this way. The wisdom of a Christian is eminently discovered in saving and improving all opportunities in this world for that world which is to come. Continue to think about what opportunities does the Lord, has the Lord given me in my life today and how do I walk in them to have eternal impact? Lastly, in all of life, obey God. So if in our foolishness we are prone to disobey God, in our wisdom we should be prone to obey God. Now why would I say that this is a component of understanding the will of the Lord? Because the Bible says that. In Thessalonians it actually says the will of the Lord is our sanctification or our ability to grow and the ability to put away sin and to embrace righteous living. It is God's will for us to walk rightly. Ephesians says, walk in the works that God lays out before you. Walk in a way that is obedient. This is very important. Uh, in Matthew, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So even though people see and know his name, they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will. For whoever does the will of God, in Mark, it says, he is my brother and sister and mother. There's strong emphasis on actually walking in good works to walk in the will of the Lord. So do you live a life that is actually affected by the will of the Lord? What areas of your life actually scream out there is no God? Are you being careless, disobedient with what the Lord has entrusted you, whether that be resources or knowledge? Are you seeking to know God with open eyes to present opportunities that he has sovereignly placed in your path? Do you desire to obey him? I think Paul wants us to consider these things. Finally, chapter, or verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So the third and final warning and response is that we are to carefully live with wisdom in a way that we avoid being prone to chase fleeting pleasures. So the warning is we are prone to chase fleeting pleasures and we respond by living a life that is full of the Spirit. So again, the warning, we are prone to chase fleeting pleasures, which I think he gives as evidence here, being drunk, and we are to respond by living a life full of the Spirit. So I just want to pause here for a second. I am fully aware that I am instructing us not to get drunk from behind a bourbon barrel pulpit. That, that is not lost on me. Um, I, I don't think I need to go into lengthy discourse about the freedom of Christian liberty that we have. I know that there are many in this audience who are strong lovers of craft beer and tasty bourbon. 
I would ask that you consider with me what Paul is instructing us with. Be careful. There's a clear charge to not get drunk because it is described as debauchery. What the heck does that mean? No one actually says debauchery. Debauchery means reckless living. Another way to put it is wasteful living, that by spending your time pursuing drink, something that is exhausted, something that pours out and leaves you empty, you are wasting your life. Now drink is one, and the one that the apostle here uh, gives us, but I think we could easily replace that with many things. Uh, The one that instantly comes to my mind is social media. How often do we spend our lives pouring over who knows what, pictures, I I don't even know. I don't like social media, but I get sucked into it and it messes with me. And it leaves me at the end of that time, whether that be minutes or hours, with absolutely nothing. Like I'm more knowledgeable about how everyone else is way cooler than me. That's foolishness. So there are a hundred ways or reasons why Paul might be uh, giving us this example of do not be drunk with wine. Maybe that person is prone to addiction. Maybe that person's fleeing from some pain. But I want us to consider that he might be offering it as we need to be careful, we need to be warned to not live a life that is chasing fleeting pleasures. An author, J.C. Ryle, says this in his book, Thoughts for Young Men, which is also great for young women. Young men... Time would fail me if I were to tell you all the fruits this love of pleasure produces and all the ways in which it may do you harm. All things that give a feeling of excitement for the time, all things that drown thought and keep the mind in a constant whirl, all things that gratify the flesh, these are the sort of things that have mighty power at your time of life and they owe their power to the love of pleasure. Be careful of the things in your life that provide excitement and pleasure at the cost of keeping your mind distracted and keeping your heart away from the eternal God. So with an understanding of our proclivity or our desire to chase after fleeting pleasures that in the end leave us empty, we must seek to live a life that is full of the Spirit. So what does this mean? The ESV translates this verse as being filled with the Spirit, but if you look at the actual tense of that that Greek text, I think a better way to say it is be filled continually by the Spirit, or literally, be being filled by the Spirit. So what does that mean? If If we're to be continually filled by the Spirit, what are we to be filled with? I think Paul already gave us the answer. In this letter, he lays out four different ways that we see Uh, describe the fullness. So in chapter one, we see that the church should share in the fullness of Christ. In chapter three, we see that Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. In four, we see that Christ fills all things and that the goal of the church is to move into mature manhood, which is defined in terms of fullness of Christ. So looking at how Paul describes what this fullness is, we need to understand that the work of the Spirit here is to fill us with the fullness of Christ. So we can look at this verse to mean the Spirit's actual work of making the believer more and more into the image of God by continually filling them with the fullness of God. So this, like, this is the goal, to become more like Christ. 
He's kind of like the main Christian. So our whole life should be spent trying to become more like Christ. And Paul is saying here, we accomplish that by being filled by the Spirit with the fullness of God. So how? How are we filled by the Spirit? If this is so important to become like Christ, which is the goal, how are we filled? Well, I think that we can look at what we've walked through today in the last 28 minutes. Um, Think often of the brevity of your life. Understand that your life is a vapor. Resolve to frequently think about the eternal impact that you're having. Avoid foolish behavior that squanders your resources or walk away from areas of your life that actually scream out there is no God. Keep your eyes open to present opportunities to serve him and and maybe above all things, walk in those things. Obey him. and Don't mess it up. It's really important. With your actions, walk away from things that are empty, away from things that are fleeting pleasures. Prioritize God. Is there anyone feeling good about that? Like, is, it, is there a guy here that could walk through that? I'm like, yep, check that box off. I've had like months to think about this and try to teach this. I'm like, I'm terrible. Honestly, just last night, I went to put my three-year-old to bed and the dude, he's, he's strong, but he's three. He reached up and slapped me so hard, it knocked the glasses off my face. And me, who has been steeped in this text for the last several days, what did I do? I did not, you know, step back, carefully consider the brevity of life. Now this is an important moment to instruct my son in kindness and patience. No. I, I literally, I looked at my wife, she said, I got this. I walked out, my heart full of anger, welling, overflowing to my shame. That was just last night. Like, I didn't prep that. That just happened. I could give you dozens of ways that I struggle to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling in which I've been called. And I don't say that to make light the commands that we have. We are called to walk that way. I say that because to be filled with the Holy Spirit requires us to participate in the work of a holy God. You cannot fill yourself with the Spirit. There's no way you can live your life that moves the Lord because of solely your own actions to fill you with His Spirit and to walk perfectly. To be filled with the Spirit, you need a work of a holy God. Holy Spirit, holy God. In the book of John, chapter seven, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So how are you filled with the Holy Spirit? You drink from the Spirit solely through repentance and faith. What Jesus is saying here is, you who are thirsty, you who are dried up chasing after the fleeting pleasures of this world, who are fooled by your own foolishness, living in ways that will end, come to me. How do we come to Jesus? We come to Jesus through repenting, putting off our foolish ways of living, and in faith, believing that Christ did this perfectly. You're not the guy that accomplished that list well. I know I'm not the guy, but there is one guy, Jesus. Jesus walked 
his life in perfect obedience to God the Father, even to the point of death, so that we might be filled with his righteousness, so that even though we mess it up, we are accredited and given his goodness. And only through the work of Christ we can have closeness and experience the presence of God in the way that we should. Without repentance and faith in Jesus, you cannot be filled with the Spirit. And without being filled with the Spirit, you cannot live a life that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which goes back to what Paul is trying to get us to understand. This life that is worthy of a life that has been, to the calling to which we have been called. Don Carson, who's an author, ex- explains what that means, living a life that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called as living it in a way that you are becoming what you once were not. So, yes, I was prone to drunkenness. Yes, I wasted so much of my time just scavenging social media for no purpose. Yes, I care way more about my family or my job or my security or my health than I do about the holy, eternal God. He's saying to walk in a manner worthy of the calling is to walk in a way that you understand what you were, you are not now. So I would say it a little bit differently. I would say living a life that is worthy of the calling in which you have been called is living with a great realization by the power of the Spirit that you are treasured by the God of all eternity. And that is good news. That is the good news for us today, that we can walk with a God who is holy but who loves us greatly through the work of Christ. So then what should our life look like being full of the Spirit? Luckily, Paul tells us. Here's a couple things. And this is not exhaustive, but I think it's important. Full of the Spirit, we joyfully address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs while singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. So that's verse 19. Two things here. This has two focuses. So one is we sing and make melody to the Lord. The Lord who in his great kindness redeems and rescues us. It is worth lifting our voices in praise to him. He is holy and it is worthy. So we are filled with his spirit to sing and make melody to the Lord with our hearts. What does that mean with our hearts? It could mean from the inside, it could mean like quietly, but I don't think that's it. I think what it is actually getting at is with our lives, we should praise God with all of we have. With everything in our inner being, we should lift our voices and sing and make melody to the God who is worthy. Secondly, there is a horizontal focus here. We are to admonish or address one another, people in this room. So what does that mean? It means you had work to do. You didn't even know about it today. And no, you're not volunteering for kids. By coming here today, you were called as a believer to serve those around you. What does that mean? How do I serve those around me today as a believer? We serve those around us by lifting our voices reminding one another of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. We lift our voices, reminding one another of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Secondly, we are encouraging one another by actually putting on display the work of God. So here in a moment, not too much longer, we as a church will stand up and we will lift our voices to God who is worthy. Do not miss the opportunities to be ministered to, to be blessed by those around you who are proclaiming the goodness of God, who are exalting God's goodness and what he has done for us. Pay attention to that. 
we are actually in a few minutes going to, to sing these words. When on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. We shall ever be his people, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign we will ever sing, all glory be to Christ. Do not miss out on this. The voices around you that are being lifted up to a holy God actually represent redeemed lives. Be encouraged by that, by the person to the left and the right of you who are exclaiming the praises to God. That is a testament to what God has done with them. Be encouraged so much so that it moves you to lift your voice to a holy God worthy of praise. Secondly, we see that a person full of the Spirit, they are to be thankful to God always and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Just two things here. Being full of the Spirit, we offer thanks to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, without Christ, you cannot offer thanks to God. So in a minute when we're singing and, and the person next to you is saying, uh, from a redeemed life, all glory be to Christ our King, all glory be to Christ, they may not explicitly be saying that Jesus died for them, that he gave them newness of life and allows them now to experience his presence, but implicitly they are, because they wouldn't even be able to offer thanks to God if Christ had not moved in their life. Pay attention to that, be encouraged at what God is doing as evidenced by our ability to thank him. And secondly, this is difficult, uh, do we really have to thank God always and for everything? So like, it's, it's easy to you know, read that and be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Uh, harder, maybe when you walk out to your car today, your window's busted and someone took all your stuff. Especially if you still got a bunch of CDs or something in there, like that could, that could get costly. That hurts, right? No one has CDs, Justin, come on. Um, no, but, but what does that mean? Do we thank God for the dude that stole my CDs? I don't think so. I don't think that it means that we thank him for bad things. I think it means that we thank him because even in the midst of bad things, even in the midst of the darkest tragedy, he still is good. He is still God and he still is faithful to redeem you. I have not seen this maybe more put on display than what I saw this past week. I have an old friend who's a pastor in Minnesota, he's got several kids, the youngest four months, tragically passed away. Four-month-old daughter. Darkness, tragedy, how does one walk through that? Literally, his life is undone. And what he put out as he was you know, telling his congregation, he said these actual words. Thankfully in all this, Jesus Christ binds up the wounds of the brokenhearted, restores our souls, and has himself wept over the suffering and the death of a loved one. If you are not full of the Spirit, you can't thank God in that. You need the Lord to fill you with his Spirit so that you can continually see the goodness of his work in Christ in your life in the midst of dark days. And finally, we, are, we see that full of the Spirit, we are to live lives that are submitted. We are to live submitted lives. So it says in 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this is actually a, a pretty big hinge verse. What I mean by that is the ability to live a submitted life is a result of being filled with the Spirit. But for the next few weeks, we're gonna talk about what that looks like, how God has divinely ordered us to submit within relationships. So I'm not gonna talk too much about it because I don't wanna steal 
other people's thunder after me. Um, but I will say that we need to pay careful attention, especially as we come and gather over the next three weeks, that to live a submitted life, you need to be full of the Spirit. It comes from being full of the Spirit. It's hard. You need to trust that God will fill you with his Spirit in the difficult times where he has called you to submit. And secondly, submission should be done out of reverence for Christ. Christ is the one who submitted himself to the Father for our sake and for his glory. So I'll leave you with this. Ultimately, we are called to live submitted lives to Christ. A life that is lived in careful submission to Christ is truly a life that is marked with wisdom and understanding. So everyone here today, you're gonna get up, you're gonna walk out, you're gonna live your life, and in doing so, you will be walking towards death. It will be a final death. And you have a choice. It's either your own eternal death that will have been preceded by a life of selfish ambition, ignorant apathy, chasing after fleeting pleasures, or you will walk towards the death of Jesus Christ. The death that is an eternity-altering, soul-lifting, God-glorifying death, a death that was offered to redeem you, a death that was preceded by the life of Christ where he walked with intimate understanding of the Father's will, where he lived in perfect wisdom and he always made the best use of the time, a life that was full of the Spirit and that was poured out in praise through submission to God's costly plan that we might experience the fullness of life as given to us through the Spirit. So do not be unwise today. Do not be unwise. Submit your life to God by embracing Jesus' life and death in faith.